Hello, this is Harvey Jason. I am very privileged to be here on this show with Matthew today. I was on Star Trek The Next Generation and had a great time doing it. And I am honored to be here on Trek Untold. Welcome back to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. On this episode of Trek Untold, we have a performer who really puts the character in character actor. You've seen his face in over a hundred different things, and today you get to learn a little bit about him as we're speaking with Harvey Jason. Trekkies will best remember Harvey from his role in the first season episode from Star Trek The Next Generation as Felix Leach in The Big Goodbye. That's the film noir episode that introduces Captain Picard's holodeck avatar, Dixon Hill. It's a highlight of the first season, and I'm positive that if you haven't seen it in a while, listening to this week's episode is going to want to make you go onto Netflix or wherever you're watching your Star Trek shows and give it another watch. Harvey began acting back in the 1960s and surprisingly somehow didn't end up in the original Star Trek series. But you may recall him from several of his other performances in all sorts of different TV shows and films, including Jurassic Park The Lost World, Seinfeld, Diagnosis Murder, L.A. Law... Alien Nation, Knight Rider, Airwolf, Chips, Wonder Woman, The Love Boat, Captains and Kings, Ironside, Sanford and Son, Night Gallery, and many, many more. Today in 2021, Harvey is and has been completely retired from the acting industry for quite some time, and now he's focused on a very notable bookstore that he and his son run called Mystery Pier Books. His clientele is some of the biggest names in Hollywood, and his books are, well, pretty darn amazing. We'll talk all about what makes this bookstore so very special and his incredibly well-known clientele, along with some of his favorite books, in addition to the usual stories about Star Trek, and of course, much, much more. So stay tuned for a very unique chat with Harvey Jason. But before we jump into our interview, I want to ask you, are you following Trek Untold on social media? It's the best way to keep up to date on who's going to be the next guest on Trek Untold and to learn all about the other cool things that are happening here. So if you're on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, go ahead and look up Trek Untold, all one word, and give us a follow and a like. If you'd like to help support the show monetarily, go ahead and check out teespring.com stores slash trekuntold to check out some of the merchandise we have available. This includes t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, sweatshirts, stickers, and a whole bunch more. So go ahead and check out teespring.com stores slash trekuntold. You can also support our show by visiting patreon.com trekuntold. If you become a paid subscriber to Trek Untold, you'll get first access to the show and a chance to ask our guests questions on future episodes. But most of all, please subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it or watching it. And if you've already done that, please also leave a review and a rating if you can. Leaving ratings and reviews helps increase the visibility of podcasts on platforms like iTunes and other places like it. It shows that you're listening and that you like it, and that other people who are interested in the same subject are going to probably like it too. It helps us grow, it helps us get better guests, and it helps us keep bringing this amazing Trek Untold show to you. If you're already following us or have supported us in any other way, thank you, of course, for being a part of the Trek Untold family. There's a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, and we're very grateful that you chose us to listen to. I'd also like to make a quick shout-out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D-printed Star Trek-inspired toys and replicas for fans of all ages and toys of all sizes. But you'll hear more about them a little later on in the show. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, 
Access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on the other side of the line, we have Mr. Harvey Jason. Harvey, how are you today? I'm extremely well. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Matthew. Oh, it's wonderful to be able to meet you. I've loved your work in so many different things, Star Trek included. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But before we jump into our typical Star Trek discussion, I wanted to ask uh, the question I gave all my guests on the show first off. And that's, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Well, my earliest memory really is not so much of Star Trek. It's of Gene Roddenberry. Really? Um, because I I was asked to go in many, many years ago. Um, Gene Roddenberry had called my agent and asked if I would come and meet with him. So um, I went in and um, he said he was uh, going to be doing, I, I, I knew from my agent he was doing a pilot and he um, was looking, uh, hoping that uh, I would uh, join him and um, play this Indian. And I had told my agent, tell him I'm, I'm Indian, really actually Indian. So I went in and met him and I said, good morning, Mr. Rodman, very pleased to meet you. I'm very pleased to meet you. I'm very... And he, he started to enunciate as he spoke to me, as if I couldn't understand English. And, oh, I've, I've, I've liked your work. You do a very good um, American accent, an English accent. Said, I know, but I am actually Indian and I'm from New Delhi. And uh, we're talking like this for a long time. And he said, well, I have this wonderful part. It's an Indian. I'd love you to, to play it and so forth. And then after about, I must have been 20, 25 minutes of chatting. I suddenly said, well, actually, I said, I don't actually talk like that, you know, Mr. Rodney. And he said, what? Oh, my God. And then we got on very well. And I did the pilot. It was a terrible pilot. But we had a great time. It was called Genesis 2. And it was uh, with Marriott Hartley and Ted Cassidy and Alex Cord. And me. We had a lot of fun doing it. And Gene and Majel, his wife, were very excited because they thought it was really going to go. And it, it, it turned out it did not. It was not. So that's when I first met um, met Gene. And um, and as a matter of fact, a couple of years later, um, while I was acting, I was uh, I was also a writer and I was writing a movie and um, I was on the set with something. I don't remember what it was. And Gene came by and we were chatting. And I said, I wonder, I said, I'm having a little trouble with this particular scene. It was a sort of a supernatural thing. And I said, how do I, how would you do this? And he was, it was wonderfully patient. He said, yo, here's what I would do. It's a great idea. And he gave the whole setup of the scene. It was great. Um, and then, but that's the earliest thing. I was not really, um, um, and I wasn't a fan of, of, of Star Trek or any of that stuff. Um, but I was a fan of Gene Roddenberry's. I, I thought he was just absolutely great. And um, uh, as, as time went on, um, I became more enamored with what he was doing and, and the whole science fiction thing. And then I began to, to really like it, you know, sold on it. Um, and then when, you know, when he decided to do this pilot, we had such a good time making it. And, you know, and he was so gracious and um, Majel was in it as well, his wife. Um, but it didn't sell. So, but he, he gave us a big party at his house, you know, and it, it was, he had buttons made with all our characters pictures on it and stuff it, it was great yeah we had a lovely time lovely time yeah that's interesting because normally when we have folks on even if they're not like necessarily big star trek fans today they'll say like oh i remember watching it as a kid the original series in the 60s but your first memory is actually working on a project for gene that's pretty impressive yeah yeah i i didn't actually watch it i mean you know my my introduction was gene roddenberry Wow. <laughs> that's quite an introduction <laughs> so can you give us a, a little bit of background information about you uh, can you tell us where you grew up what your parents did and what little harvey wanted to be when he grew up 
No, I always wanted to be an actor. I always wanted to be an actor. Yeah, I was always a show-off, and I always wanted to be an actor when I was a child. I had a marvelous childhood. I grew up in London um, with wonderful parents. I was an only child, so I enjoyed being an only child. I enjoyed all the love, um, which is what I've been seeking all my life, and I adored it. And um, my mother had me reading at a very, very early age. When I was reading at three years old and reading books and stuff, and um, she, she was a voracious reader. And uh, my dad was um, in London, had a printing business, a printing business. And then um, during the war, uh, it got the printing shop got bombed and he became a salesman. So he was away a lot. And um, so I was with my, my mother, and, uh, who was ex ex most extraordinary woman. She was walking sunshine, my mom. And um, so she encouraged me to read. And so... You know, I read a great deal and I got immersed in the world of literature. And, and then many, I went to school and I went to university. And then many years later, I was um, 19 uh, and I went to New York. And um, I got very lucky. You know, I, I was in New York a very short time and I got the first play, an off-Broadway off broad, off play. And then I got a Broadway play and then I began doing plays regularly. And um, and then I was doing a play with Ray Milland, the late Ray Milland uh, on Broadway. And then I left and I got uh, an offer to fly out. They flew me out to California to do a um, to meet with um, Robert Wise, the director, Bob Wise, for a film a star, Julie Andrews. And so. Uh, I came back, I flew out here and I did the picture. And then I, my agent got me a ton of television work. And I began, I was out here just doing one TV show after the other for a, oh, a good three months. Then I went back to New York. I was married at the time, it was a terrible marriage. I was a wretched husband. And um, I went back to New York. But then my agent kept calling me from here. And so I kept coming back. Ultimately, I moved out here. Um, which was a very wise move professionally. And um, and I began doing a, a, a lot of work. And then, and then in 1970, I did a movie. Um, I had just, I did a movie with um, Pamela Franklin, who had just been a huge success in, in um, the prime of Miss Jean Brodie and gotten an Oscar nomination and, and Orson Welles. And I, I had been living with a girl for two and a half years in California and Pamela Franklin was flown over to do this film and she was engaged to be married to somebody in London. And um, three weeks after we first laid eyes on each other, we decided to get married and we fell in love. And it was as simple as that. And I had to obviously break the bad news to the girl I'd been living with and Pamela had to break the news to her fiance. And um, about two months later, we had a huge wedding at the Pebble Hills Hotel. And uh, a week from last Sunday, we celebrated 50 years of marriage. It's fantastic. God's grace. I mean, a magnificent marriage. And uh, she gave up uh, acting oh, many years ago uh, to look after our kids, the two boys. And, um, and then I decided um, in 19... 97 my, my youngest son was in the book business and um, he didn't have a shop he was selling 
books, uh, book fairs and online and so forth. And it was always a pipe dream of mine. I always wanted to open a really first class bookshop, only first edition, literature, signed Dickens and solid stuff. And it was always a pipe dream, really. And I remember I was in my trailer, I was in my trailer in 90, the beginning of 97, I think it was. And um, I was talking to the director, it was Steven Spielberg, and I was talking to Steven. And I said, um, you know, when we wrap this picture, Stephen, I'm in the book business. I made up my mind. He said, what? I said, I'm in the book business. He said, what do you mean? You're an actor? I said, no, no, I've always wanted. He said, well, I don't understand. I said, no, I'm, I'm really, this is it. This is my swan song. He said, but you're one of the stars of this movie. I mean, I said, no, nah, Stephen, it's been great. You know, I've loved it. I had a lovely run, um, but I'm over in the book business. I'm in the book business. And, uh, and then Louis and I opened this shop and, Again, it's God's grace. It, it, it's, it's called one of the three most important first edition shops in America. It's a famous shop. Who knew? It's another chapter. Who knew? Yes. yes. Well, we're definitely going to talk a lot more about that store later on because I have a lot of questions about that too. Uh, but let's take a, let's back up for a second because I actually want to ask you about a film you did back in the 60s, uh, which is called mm-hmm. Lilith from 1964. And uh, that had Warren Beatty, Peter Fonda, Kim Hunter, Gene Hackman, you, yourself, and uh, you had also another Trek alumni, Rene Abergenois. Well, oh, Rene, Rene, I loved Rene. Yeah, I loved Rene. Uh, no, I don't remember anything about that. It was a. There were so many of us in that we had nothing to do. It was nothing to do. It was. Um, you guys were mostly like extras, right? That was like one of your first roles, too, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was. He. I don't know how, I mean, how it came about. Really, I don't know how it came about. I think we were all mental patients or something. I don't. I don't. I don't remember. I don't think I, I don't, I never saw the film, but um, I don't know. It was a way to, you know, I think somebody went around to theaters and asked the actors if they wanted to be extras in this, in this movie. I think that's what happened. And um, yeah, and we were, we all did it. You know, we all did it. A lot of those extras turned out to be big stars. It was, I don't remember much about it really. It's an interesting little movie. It, it's really kind of ahead of its time in a lot of ways. It talks a lot about mental health in really? an era where that wasn't really discussed. So that's kind of interesting. And yeah, you mentioned actually get it and find it and see it. Yeah, it is a little bit hard to find, but it's out there. Yeah, you can do a little digging, and it's it's definitely out there. His daughter is an actress. Uh, Robert Rosson's daughter is an actress, or she was anyway. I remember. Yeah. That. I remember. I worked with her at some point. Now you mentioned you had a uh, you had some relationship with Renee. Also, did you know him from your time in theater? No, I I, I knew Renee because. Um, when I came over, I went, uh, before I went to New York, I went to Carnegie Tech for a year. And um, Renee and I were in the same class. And that's when, I, that's when we met. So we knew each other. We were like 18 years old. Yeah. I was very saddened to hear about his passing. Yeah, we all were. Yeah. He was a terrific actor and a great guy. Yeah, I'm sad I never got to actually meet him myself. And I'd love to have interviewed him on this show, too. Uh, do you remember back then? Was he a good student? Uh, how was he in school? Yeah, he was very good. Very good. I was only there briefly, but he was, you know, you could see the talent. He was very, very gifted. He's very talented. I'm hoping you got some memories of this one now, because I did want to ask you about Batman. Because you were in uh, the original Batman series with Adam West. That was a lot of fun. Um, he was, Adam was very nice. Um, I worked with him again afterwards in, in another movie. Adam and, uh, yes, we had fun. We had fun. Uh, Rudy Valley, the old Rudy Valley was, uh, was, was, was who we worked with in that. And uh, Adam was nice, and, and um, the other guy was nice as well. 
I don't remember him as much. But Adam and I uh, talked a lot and uh, very personable guy and never took it seriously. You know, I mean, just was very grateful for the gig, very grateful for the job and stuff. And um, he was just very unpretentious. He was very, very nice. I liked him a lot, really a lot. Rudy Valley. Rudy Valley was a big silent screen star, you know. Um, I, I, he didn't say much. He was, he was known for being very stingy, but I didn't have much to do with him. We, we worked together, but, I, but it was fun doing that show. It was really fun doing that show. Three of them. It was fun. It was fun. Oh, and the Batmobile and all that stuff, yeah. Who knew that today, you know, it would be a big pop culture thing. It's huge, yeah. And the episodes we're talking about are the Londinium Larcenies. And uh, you also got to have a fight scene with Adam West, too. Do you remember doing that? No. <laughs> I, I had a fight scene with Adam West? Yeah, there's a big fight scene with you and the other goons that Rudy Valley had hired. And you get into a big fight scene in a bar. And you're all wearing this crazy mod, you know, 1960s British outfits. Yeah, yeah I remember the outfits. Yeah, I remember all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you do these shows, you know, episodic TV stuff, and it's just it's just a job. And other times you can have a really good time. And, and that was one of them. It was, a, it was a lot of fun. The people were very nice. They were all very nice. And I liked Adam. I, I liked Adam a lot. So I don't know if you remember this one now. I actually just watched this as well because, uh, you know, all the Star Trek shows are on CBS All Access. You can watch them there. And I didn't realize this. They also have The Love Boat. And I've never watched it before. It's not for my time. But uh, you actually were in an episode of The Love Boat, which had some very big guest stars. You had Aubrey Meadows, Robert Mandon, Harry Morgan, uh, Georgia Engel, who you were doing your scenes with. Uh, do you remember yeah, much yeah. about doing that? Yes, we had a good time. Well, I had done uh, I had done a very popular um, two-part Charlie's Angels, which is a, a really big, big one. And then they, the spelling people called and said, would I do this Love Boat? So I said, yeah. And interestingly enough, you know, in those days, there was a top of the show. The money was top of the show, and it was never terrific. But Aaron Spelling used to pay double. He was the only the only outfit in town that paid really decent money for guest stars. He paid double what anybody else paid, which was which was lovely. But it was it was nice doing that show. It was fun. They treat you very well. We had a good time. In fact, I ran into um, oh, what's his name, the doctor, uh, Bernie Capel. I ran into the guy who played the doctor. We I did a um. I was asked to do one of these um, conventions, you know, this autograph uh, convention things, which I had not done before. So I didn't want to do it. But I, I did this and I had a lot of fun. And I ran into Bernie Capel there. And he was he was uh, he always great, always good natured and charming. And I love you meet some lovely people in this business. You meet some jerks, too. But you meet some really nice people. And I'm glad that you brought up that uh, Charlie's Angels episode, too, because that, that was a big one. Uh, can you tell us uh, anything you remember from that? Because Charlie's Angels is such a, again, cultural phenomenon in America. And that was a great, it was a, it was a terrific experience. It was, um, apparently it was their highest rated episode. And it was um, an ice skating thing. I was the director of the ice capades. And um, I had to direct these girls at the ice capades. It was, and I don't ice skate. Um, and it was this, I played this very gay director, this very gay ice skating director and a very flamboyant. And it was a lot, it was a lot of fun. Phil Silvers was, uh, was in it. And, um, and the girl, it was the first season for, um, what's her name? Farrah Fawcett had left. And, um, it was the first season for, um, oh, what's her name? Uh, was it Kate Jackson or Jacqueline Smith? No, Cheryl Ladd? No, it was Cheryl Ladd. Yeah, it was Cheryl's first season. And Kate, who I like a lot, Kate was a good friend of my wife's. And 
So I knew Kate quite well. But that was a lot of, that was a really a terrific show to do. It was great. It was really great. They had a good director and, a, and it moved along. I remember it very well, actually. We had a great time every day. So it was a long time. It was about, I think that was like about three weeks work on that show. It was good. It was fun. And you've been in so many really, really amazing things from that time period, too. I mean, we're talking about the Wonder Woman series. Uh, you, you've done Rich Man, Poor Man, Specialist, Barnaby Jones, yeah. Canon, Hawaii Five-0. Yeah. I mean, you were on Perch everything in that era. Yeah, yeah, all, everything. It was nonstop work, and it was great. You know, it was really lovely. A lot of it was junk, but you knew it was junk. Everybody knew it was junk, and the people who created it knew it was junk. But nonetheless, we had fun doing it. Nobody took it very seriously. And then occasionally you do something that was wonderful. Like I did a, a, a miniseries called The Captains and the Kings, which was a, a, a brilliant, it's genius work by directed by a, a genius called Douglas Hayes, Doug Hayes. And um, in it, um, it, it every, every huge movie star you can imagine guest starred in this series. It was 10 hours. And it was a, it was a, Actually, it was an uptake on the on the Kennedy story. It was about a young Irish immigrant who becomes the first Irish Catholic president of the United States, and and his buddy, who was a young Lebanese kid, and um, Richard Jordan and I were best friends, and we both of us got to age from like seventeen into our seventies in this piece, and it was. It, a wonderfully rewarding experience, an incredible experience. You know, and I got to work with people like Henry Fonda, I mean, Henry Fonda, every every star you can think of did a did a cameo in this piece, or or larger. And it was a, a hugely popular series. It was great. And rarely do you get. I mean, there are movies features that you get which are rewarding, but rarely do you get to do a meaningful piece of television. And that that really was. That really really was. It was stupendously, colossally successful. And we loved it. We loved doing it. I feel bad because now I'm going to ask you about some schlock again, because I'm curious about uh, Knight Rider. <laughs> if you remember anything about being on Knight Rider. Yeah, I do. I do. Because I had done a, a movie, a feature called uh, The Gumball Rally. And the, and the director was Chuck Fail. I got a call from my agent saying, you know, this director wants you to do an episode of uh, Knight Rider. I said, who's the director? He says, Chuck Bale. I said, oh, absolutely, yeah. So I went in and I'd hurt my back. And Chuck was a good director. He was an action director, but he was also a stuntman. And um, I went in and my back was it was killing me. I just twisted my back. And I said, so Chuck said to me, he says, you've got to run. I said, run, Chuck, I've got a bat. He said, no, no, I'm a stuntman. He said, I'm going to push you and you're going to run all the way over the, to that tree. Go ahead. And he smashed me on the back and I ran and the back thing was gone. It was completely gone. And we had a good time doing that, sitting there, that computer. I was at a computer working as Knight Rider. Yeah, that was a fun show. Some of them were fun. It was slock, but it was fun. It was fun. And so much is depending upon the, the director and the crew, you know, and, and Chuck was a, was very imaginative, very good to work with. And the trick is when you're, when you're dealing with, with crap, you can't treat it like crap, you know what I mean? And and it was slug, but but we, you know, it was it was an interesting week. It was good. Wonder Woman, all those years ago, was a great lot of fun because oh, yeah. she was delightful. Linda Carter was, she was just grand. She was terrific. And I brought my son on the set. He was like three, my older son, 
and um, she she was so nice to him, and he couldn't stop looking at her boobs. You know, she she's holding him, and he's staring at these boobs, and she was laughing, and I was laughing. And she was lovely. She was really lovely. She's a lovely person. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or a toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hello, everyone. I'm Armin Shimmerman. Perhaps you know me better as Quark from Deep Space Nine. As your favorite Ferengi, I'm here to promote a sale. It's not self-sealing stem bolts, but my new novel, Illyria. And the first book is called The Betrayal of Angels. Some of you may not know that aside from being an actor, I'm also a novelist. My newest novel is a mystery set in 1583. Its heroes are the historical characters of John Dee, who was a spiritualist, a book collector, and a spy. With him is an unsuccessful playwright named William Shakespeare. Their mission is to investigate a nobleman who happens to be Count Orsino from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. The book employs comedy, history, and fantasy to tell a page-turner of a story. It reads a lot like Sherlock Holmes or like one of my favorite shows, Homeland. Please check out my website at www.armandshimmerman, get the name right, .com, or you can get it directly from my publisher at www.jumpmasterpress.com. You can buy it either as a paperback, a hardback, or an ebook. So, why don't you check it out and judge for yourself? Or better yet, give it as a gift to someone. I know they'll appreciate it. Uh, disclaimer, no Latin accepted. We now return to Trek Untold. Harvey, let's talk about your Star Trek The Next Generation appearances. It's your first time in the franchise. You were in the episode of The Big Goodbye from the very first season. And you played Felix Leach. This episode is basically Star Trek's uh, love letter, if you will, to the big sleep, the Maltese Falcon, and film noir movies in general. Uh, can you tell us uh, how you got cast for that role? You know, I don't even, I don't remember how I got cast. I think I just got a call. You know, I just uh, got a call saying, you know, you've got an offer to do, to do this. And basically it's sort of a Peter Laurie, Sydney Greenstreet kind of thing, you know? So, um, I said, yeah, I, I would, I would like to do it. So I, I did it, and um, it was Pat's first season. I do remember that at that time I was quite friendly. Pat and I got quite friendly, and I, I some somebody had contacted me about 
Um, they said, you're, you're English. Do you have people in England that you telephone? I said, yeah, yeah. He said, because I have a deal where I can get you very, very cheap phone calls to England. So I said, oh, that's very good. So I signed up with this guy. And I was talking to Pat. Pat said, I have very little money and so forth. I said, I got a great deal for you then. I said, this guy contacted me and I can get you a cheap deal for phone calls to London. He said, oh, yes, yeah, sign me up, sign me up. So I gave him the guy's number. And he and he came the next day. He said, this is great. He said, these are really cheap calls. This is wonderful. It turned out, I think I heard like a year or so later that the guy was arrested for fraud. It was an entirely illegal thing. I had no idea. You know, I had no idea what it was, nor did Patrick Stewart for that matter. But he was thrilled. You know, he was thrilled. So was I. So I went in to do this thing. And, um, it, you know, as I say, it was a takeoff. It was um, Sydney Green Street and Peter Laurie. And the guy, um, what's his name? You'll tell me the name of the guy I played with. Um, um, uh, Lawrence Tierney? Yeah, Larry Tierney. So Larry Tierney was a very, may he rest in peace, was a very difficult guy. I've heard that. And he would invariably blow lines and then he'd blame it on a technician. He'd, he'd say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm saying it. I could the fucking light get 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 uh, oh, turn the light away. I couldn't think of a line because of the light. And he always blamed somebody else, you know. But he, he had a lot of trouble, a troubled line. He was, and you didn't want to cross him. He was a really tough guy. I mean, he, he would lose his temper. He was a, he he was a great presence. I liked him. I liked him a lot. And he was, but he was a terrific presence, on, you know, on set and on screen. And when he was younger, he had done some wonderful work. He'd done a lot of really good work, but we had a very good time. I don't know if he had a good time. I had a great time on that show. I had a, I'm not sure what he did, whether he did. I don't think he did, but I had a wonderful time. The, they were nice, you know, and everybody was amenable. And um, it was fun. It was a fun episode to do. And then uh, did you see the plate? Yeah, you have the plate right there with you. Very nice. <laughs> and in fact, a funny thing, about a year or so ago, about a, about a, about a year and a half ago, Seth MacFarlane came into the shop to buy some, bought some books. And um, in, in our office area of the shop, there are various clippings and personal things. And um, one, the, the plate was there. And suddenly he comes in and he says, oh, my God, you're Felix Leach. I said, what? Said, you're Felix Leach. Said, He's a huge Star Trek fan, which I didn't know. Oh, yeah, he's a giant Star Trek nerd. He had all the characters on uh, in one of the episodes of Family Guy, and he's at the Orville now, oh, really? of course. He's a big, big he's Star Trek fan. Guy. He's a terrific guy. You know, there was a, a woman came in when he was in there, and she came into it. She said, is that, is that Seth MacFarlane? And he said, yeah. So she said to Louis, my son, like, could I say hello? I said, of course you can say hello to him. So she went over and she said, oh, I'm such a fan. You know, they usually take a picture of you. And he smiled and said, uh, no, I don't think so. But he was kidding. And she said, oh, the reason I ask is because my best friend is getting married and she's a huge fan of yours. So he said, what's your best friend's name? So she told him. He said, put that on sound. And he did a three, we timed him. He did a three minute monologue in the voice of Skippy to the bride all about getting married and then probably getting divorced. It was fantastic. And the, the girl came back sometime after and said they played it at the wedding. It was the hit of the wedding. But he's a remarkably lovely guy, this Stephen McFarlane. Terrific guy. 
So this character you played, Felix Leach, uh, as you mentioned, he's very much like Joe Egypt from uh, Maltese Falcon. Uh, but this yeah. really wasn't actually your first time doing a Peter Lorre type character. I mean, you did that as well in uh, Bring Him Back Alive, right? Yes, I do. Yes, yes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. We patterned it after him. Well, I loved Peter Lorre. I loved Peter Lorre. You know, he was, um, he had a damn good career and he was an insecure guy. But I, I loved watching Peter Lorre. He had a great screen presence. You know, and, and he and Sidney Greenstreet always played off each other very, very well. Yeah, and I think you and Lawrence also had that kind of same chemistry on camera too, very much the Sidney Greenstreet and the Peter Lorre type. Not just the look too, but... He was, you know, he's a he's a very good actor. He was a very very good actor, and and had a, a decent career. We, I think we worked well together. I mean, I liked him, you know, and 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 we we did we we. I think I had a very good time. I don't know whether he did, but but I enjoyed working with him. It was a nice show to do. It was a very nice show to do. I had very little to do with all the other people, really. I liked the guy, um, the Dana. Yeah, that's uh, Brett Spiner. Yeah, I liked him. I liked him. I had very little to do with anybody else, really, I think. But I liked him. For the most part, your scenes are with Patrick, they're with Brent, and with Gates McFadden, as well as Larry. Uh, do you remember much about, do you have any stories, I should say, about uh, working with Brent or Gates or Patrick on this episode? I don't really. Um, I, I remember enjoying working um, with Pat because he was very professional and he was very nice. And look, it was his first season, so he wanted to be amenable to everybody, you know, and, and nice. He was very professional, uh, but it was a very, very enjoyable, easy show to do. You know, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, and it got me it got me quite enamored of of science fiction. I mean, I, I, I had not watched the show before then. And then I I was thoroughly enamored of it. I really I was, it was great charm. And also the detail on that show was exquisite, a terrific, terrific detail. You know, really, really good. I mean, basically, almost all of your scenes are inside the holodeck in the 1940s looking sets. Uh, but did you have a chance to kind of look around, see the bridge of the Enterprise, see everybody in their uniforms? Did you have yeah. a chance to kind of observe? Yeah. yeah, that was lovely. I was fascinated by the whole thing. It was really going into a different world. It was totally fascinating. You know, and I loved it. I really, really loved it. I enjoyed it enormously. I mean, for someone who has, at this point, worked so much already doing so many different television shows, did you feel that this show, Star Trek Next Generation, had any legs to actually stand on? Did you think it was going to go far or was it going to be maybe just a one and done, that's it? First of all, I, I thought it deserved to be very successful. The people were very dedicated. The crew was very dedicated. I remember the crew was really um, enjoying it all. And when you've got a happy crew, that's that's 90% uh, towards success. So everybody, everybody was was very enthusiastic. If you remember that, and that doesn't often happen with the show, where shows where people just get tired and you know they just they just walk it through the paces. But people, I remember vividly, everybody was very excited and enthusiastic about about Star Trek, about this. Now this episode was directed by Joseph Scanlon. Uh, had you worked with him before? Or did you know much about him? No, I didn't know anything about him at all. I do remember he was very nice enough to call me. Uh, after the show had aired, and sometime after, he called me at home. I don't know how he got my number, but he called, I remember he called me at home to say that that episode had won the Peabody Award. You know, which I thought was well, very nice. He was a good director, this guy. Haven't heard too many bad stories about him. But no, he was a good director. Did he direct a lot of the Star Treks after that? He did. He did start to for quite some time, yep. 
So I've got to ask a question now. I think it's kind of been the thing I've been waiting to ask this whole interview, and that's about your accent. Because for the most part, I imagine everything you did was typically with an American accent, but you were born in England. Yeah. So, uh, you know, something I've always wanted to ask folks is, is when you're born in another country, what do you do to actually change your accent? Is it difficult for you to act like that? No, I, you know, listen, I can do any accent under the sun. I mean, I play people from Arkansas. I've been Ozarks, anything like that there. I talk anything like that. I play the Arkansas people. I play people from Texas. And I play New Yorkers. I've just been able to do accents all my life. As I did a lot of voiceover work. So I did a lot of a lot of different accents. Yeah. It's just, I, don't, I never started. I mean, it just was natural. It just came natural to me. I was lucky. Yeah. So the thing I found with accents is basically it's very easy to like fake one, but to make it sound genuine is a whole other thing. Like, for example, yeah. a New Yorker, they're going to have their ahs and oars sounding like that, like I just did. Uh, how do you find out more about those types of the linguistics of where people come from? And how do you incorporate that into your acting and make sure you don't lose it so that you don't end up showing your, your English side? It's nothing that I was consciously aware of studying or anything. I mean, it's like Australian, you know, played Australians as well. I remember once doing a commercial. Australian and I went in and I did this something and there are all these other Australians out there, real Australians um, in the waiting room. And I went in and I got the job and the director said, you see, I knew you were real. He said, those other people were just faking the Australian accent. Oh, Christ. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, Sydney. Yeah. I like, I like, you know, I like doing different accents. I, have, I had a great time. So when this episode of Star Trek first aired on TV, did you watch it? Yeah, I did. What did you think of it? I thought it was fun. I thought it was fun. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I watched it with my with my family. We all did. We, we liked it. And then I began watching Star Trek. You know, It got me, it got me into it. It, <laughs> so into it made it. you a real fan. I have, a whole, I have in the shop, I have an entire archive of, of the Star Trek um, historical stuff that, that Gene Rodman, all of his notes, I mean, there's a huge thick manuscript all about the history of Star Trek, how he wrote, how it all came to be. It's really very cool. Very, very cool. Gene, Gene was a genius. But above and beyond all that, he was the nicest human being. He was so generous of spirit and he was so humble and he was so likable. He was just down to earth and he was just terrific. One of the most remarkably wonderful people I've met. And, you know, and I think I mean, to possess that kind of genius, and he really was, I mean, he was a genius um, and so nice. I mean, devoid of any kind of pretentiousness, you know, never had any. He was just a normal guy, as was Majel, as was his wife, you know, lovely people, lovely people. Yeah, I think you're the first person we've ever talked to on the show who actually was part of Genesis, too. So, uh, yeah, it's really cool to actually know that you, you were part of that thing and actually have some memories working on it with Majel and everybody. Yeah, that was fun. That was really fun because Ted, may you rest in peace, Ted Cassidy became one of my best friends. And um, I was very sad when, when Ted died. But he and his wife and Pam, my wife and I were very close, very close. And Marriott Hartley and I have been friends for, my God, for 60 years, for a long, long time since we were both 19 earlier, you know. Because when I came over and first went to Carnegie Tech, so did she. And we met and we were both like 18. We've known each other all these years and have stayed in touch. Another great actress, Mariette. Yeah, I'm curious if you know actually the story behind uh, the name of your character in Genesis 2, because uh, Gene Roddenberry had used similar names throughout Star Trek before. 
Oh, I didn't know that. I don't know anything about the derivation of the name. Really? Yeah, yeah. So in the original Star Trek series, there's a character named Khan. You probably are familiar with the name Khan. You've heard it before, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the full name of Khan is Khan Noonien Singh. And there's also a character in Next Generation who, you know, Brent Spiner, he plays Data. So his creator was something else. It was Dr. Noonien Soong. So he always had variations of the Singh and Soong because uh, the story is that there was a friend that Gene knew during his time in the service, I believe whose name was like Singh or something like that. And he always wanted to try and reach out and find that guy again. And he was hoping that he would see his show and hear his name and try and reach out to him. Oh, that's interesting. Well, Singh is a common Indian name. Yeah, which makes it even kind of odder that he tried to reach out. But I guess back then he wasn't thinking, you know, different times, didn't quite know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a very different time. I mean, everything about the time back then, you know, when I met Gene it was in the 60s, 70s, whatever, such a different time in every way, you know. Than it is today but he was still very much ahead of his time too though i mean doing things that we are still doing now you know he was kind of a pioneer in a lot of ways absolutely oh no absolutely he was uh, as i say I, i'm convinced that in every sense of the word he was a genius a real genius his imagination was unlimited and and with it he possessed the the most incredible natural humility there was never any airs of pretentiousness about him you know you met you knew you met him i never had a chance to meet him now Terrific guy. Terrific. So something else we have to discuss today is your time in Jurassic Park, in particular the Jurassic Park sequel, The Lost World, that you oh, played yeah. Ajay Sidhu. Uh, did you actually audition for Spielberg for that one? No, he, he wanted to see um, tape. So I was put on tape for it. And um, I, I was hired, actually. It's an interesting thing. I was hired to do another movie. And I was about to start the other movie. And when I put myself on tape for Stephen. And then two days later, I called, I didn't call my agent. I called the casting woman to say, um, do you know anything? Because I'm starting this other movie. And I said, can I speak to the casting woman? And the secretary said, just a second. And the casting woman got on the phone and said, hey, you got the job. Stephen loves you. And I thought, oh, Christ. And so I had to get my agent to call the other movie and say, I'm out, you know, I'm not doing it. And then we were supposed to go to, we're supposed to film in uh, in Australia. Uh, and then Stephen's wife, Katie, was having a baby. So he didn't want to be that far away. So we went to, we started off in uh, upstate California. We started off in the Redwood country. Uh, there, were, there were actually 10 of us that started in that movie. And it was a very close company. We were all very close, the 10 of us. And um, so Stephen flew us up there, uh, the little plane, he flew us all up there. And um, we were in Eureka, California for a couple of weeks. And then, then we came back here and we shot on the about a couple of months in the back lot at Universal. And then we all flew to uh, Hawaii and we shot there for a few weeks and then came back and uh, shot another few weeks. It was a long, about four month shoot uh, in the back lot at Universal. Was that the and longest that, shoot you'd ever done for a film at that point? No, I, 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 but I, I wondered that too. But no, about the same length or maybe a little more um, in Too Late the Hero, um, the Michael Caine film in, in the Philippines, Bob Aldrich. That was a long shoot. That was a long shoot. That was a great, that was a great time. That was a really good time. 
So I'd read an article with Steven Spielberg where he said that he became uh, disenchanted with the film as it was happening. He became impatient with himself. Uh, did you feel that or did you see that as the movie was happening? No, I can't say that I did really. Steven is a, is a different kind of director than I had been used to working with. He just lets you, doesn't really direct very much. You know, a lot of the credit, and I, I believe this to be true, uh, he's a very gifted director say that from the start but a great deal of the credit that goes to him should really be given to Janusz Kaminski because Janusz his cinematographer is in every sense of the word a genius Janusz set those shots set them all up got the lighting he's a genius and Stephen gets credit for a lot of what what Janusz does but we had a lot of in that movie I mean it was um I you know I was very annoyed because Basically, the, the the scenes that I did, the big there was a big scene at the beginning that completely was cut, totally cut. It was it set the whole picture up. The whole thing was set up in that scene. And Stephen said to me, "Well, Pete Postlewaite wants to get rid of that scene, the fighting scene." And I said, "Oh, don't." He said, "No, I'm not going to lose it. I won't lose it." And then and then he did. And basically, all of my stuff was gone. All my dialogue was in that. Most of my was in that particular scene. They put it back in the um in in the in the video version but in the in the actual screen they did they didn't so that was very disappointing but they were a nice bunch of people and we had a good time doing that movie we had a lovely time yeah i noticed that when i was watching it how little your character seems to say so i was curious about that too um yeah, no, they got the whole thing all my dialogue was in this big scene they inserted it back in one of the things on video but not in the um the thing and it was i was very just obviously obviously very disappointed but that's the way of it, you know. And your character also dies off screen too, which uh, is also kind of unfortunate because I was hoping to at least see you, you know, get off, right? Uh, was, was it always supposed to be an off screen death or were there plans to actually have something more gruesome happen? No, because it was very, you just heard me scream, um, don't go into the long grass or don't go into the tall grass or something. And then you knew, you know. And then I was getting all kinds of mail from people with that line. That line became. Don't go into the doghouse, oh, Christ Almighty! I, I'm glad I did the picture, and it was um, it was interesting. It was fun. It was a lot of fun, and the people were nice. You know, we had a really good time. We're a close knit company. We're together for a long time, so it's important. And Stephen really treats everybody incredibly well. I mean, you know, the trailers are the height of luxury, and everything is. You know, it's it's an A1 production when you work for him. And so in addition to having a plate from Star Trek Next Generation, you also have an action figure of yourself from the Jurassic World sequel. Yeah. yeah. Well, what yeah. do you think about your action figure? Do you like how it looks? I like it. Yeah. Have you seen it? It's a good action figure. Yeah, I like it. Do you think it looks like you or is it a little off? No, I, I think it does. It does. It's got the glasses. It looks exactly. I've got it here somewhere. I've got one somewhere here. No, I think it looks like me. Yeah, I always like talking to people who actually have action figures themselves. And it's fun because, you know, normally the Star Trek toys are very realistic. Uh, in your case, it's a lot more of a playable toy. And I think you come with like a missile launcher or something too, right? Yeah, it's is that a a missile launcher? I don't know about that. Yeah, something like that. You got a little dinosaur with it. That's pretty cute. Yeah, it's too expensive. I'll buy another one, but it's too expensive. It's like 300 and some bucks. Yeah, what's it like to be a rare action figure? That's pretty great too. <laughs> and it's, it's fun to have an action figure. It really is. Yeah, yeah. So, Harvey, what would you say would have been the worst day on any set you've ever been on? And what was the best day of any set you've ever been on, movie or film? What a great question. Terrific question. Well, the worst day ever 
was on the lost world when I blew I blew a line, the first line, and I couldn't I couldn't remember the bloody line. You know, I felt like uh, the guy on Star Trek blowing his lines. I couldn't remember the line. That was the worst day of any set I've ever had. Ultimately, it came it came to me. But I, I you've got 150 people in the crew and suddenly go blank. Awful. Happens to a lot of people, but it never happened to me before. That was the worst. The best day, I've had a lot of good days, a lot of really great days. One of the best days I ever had was I played um, the infamous lawyer Roy Cohn for Stanley Kramer, may he rest in peace, um, and doing a monologue at that point in that show was a highlight for me because I'd worked with Stanley Kramer three different times and I loved him. Uh, another true cinematic genius, may he rest in peace, and a great man, a great guy, uh, full of conviction. You know, I mean, he made political uh, he was Stanley Kramer's made some of the best movies that Hollywood has ever made and so I had a wonderful wonderful series of experiences working with him and a movie I did with him um, was responsible for a very great friendship of mine one of my best friends uh, was Jack Palance and um, Jack and I worked together on Oklahoma Crude for Stanley Kramer with Faye Dunaway and George C. Scott and all of our stuff, Jack's and mine were together. And we became very, very friendly and very, very close. And um, he was one of the greats, Jack, Jack Balance, really one of the great guys. As an actor, an underrated actor, because he was a superb actor. But he used to say to me, you know, because of his face, he, he, he never thought of himself like that. And he got cast in parts that he really didn't want to play. And he was brilliant, he was really brilliant. So, you know, I had great moments on that. And I like George Scott. I like George C. Scott a lot. I like George a lot. Faye Dunaway is a crazy woman. Um, but, um, yeah, we had some good times on that. Some George and George and, um, and Faye Dunaway didn't get along at all. They, they just, uh, she was very, very difficult. And, uh, and he was a professional and couldn't put up with the rubbish that she was always doing. She's a lunatic. She's a lunatic. And um, she's very difficult. But uh, anyway, so I loved working with Stanley Kramer. I loved working with Bob Aldridge, Robert Aldridge, who was a terrific director. And that well, I had great times um, in the Philippines with uh, Michael Caine and Denham Elliott and in Too Late the Hero some great times in this business you know you don't get that so much in television because it's so short-lived but if you're on a movie for an extended period of time it becomes like a second family you know you you get your own find your own people some you don't get along with particularly or some you're not that close with and some you get very very close with and um and they become an important part of your your career an important part of your emotional life and you learn a lot, you know, you learn a lot. I learn a lot from these actors. You know, Michael Caine always said, um, I'll tell you something, Harvey, if you want, I'll tell you what a bit of advice as an actor, if you want to get an Academy Award, always look up, always look up. Let's see your eyes, look up. <laughs> All right, Michael, great. He's a marvelous man, Michael Caine. Besides that bit of advice from Michael Caine, was there ever any advice you received from another fellow actor uh, that you used, whether it be in life or in acting, that you just used forever that always resonated with you? 
Well, Henry Fonda once said to me, he came on to do a guest shot on, um, on our series, Captains of the Kings. And he had just come out of Cedar sinai Hospital, having an open heart surgery. Came The next day he came on and had a two-page monologue. And it, it was word perfect. He was superb. And he came back again to do it again the next day. And um, so I, I, he was very reserved kind of guy, Henry Fonda. And I was nervous talking to him. But he was reserved. He was polite. He was aloof, very aloof. But he said, um, I said, you, you're remarkable. I said, you don't blink. He said, no, that's, you've got to treat yourself that, he said. Try not to blink. I thought, that's very good, yeah. I mean, Henry Fonda telling me, don't blink. Michael Caine said, look up. <laughs> they look up and don't blink. And then you got an Oscar. You know, it's great. <laughs> oh, dear me. There's actually a YouTube video of uh, Michael Caine doing, I guess, an acting class somewhere in probably like the late 70s, I think. And he's like telling people similarly, actually, about not blinking in a scene. It's kind of a very funny video because of just how intense and awkward it is at the same time. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. He's a great guy. He's lovely, Michael. He's really lovely. He came in a few years ago. I hadn't seen him for a long time. And I was in the back of the shop, the bookshop. And uh, suddenly the clinking of the bell, somebody came in. And my son, Louis, went to the front. And I hear a familiar voice say, hello, is, uh, is your Harvey in? I'm an old friend of your dad's. Well, I, I know that voice. I came out, it was Michael. <laughs> Terrific. He's, um, he is 87 years old. So we spent a lot of this interview talking about that bookstore, and that is Mystery Peer Books, and you're in California. So tell us, yeah. tell us a little bit more about the bookstore, because it's you mentioned already some really interesting things about it. I wish I could go visit it, but I'm all the way on the other side of the world. But yeah, tell us a bit more about the store. Yeah, you, can, you can look at it online. There's all kinds of videos of it. Um, I, Louis and I opened, my son was selling books online and book fairs and stuff. And um, in 98, we decided to open the shop. And we found a place on Sunset Strip. And um, we just thought, you know, we would sell only spe specifically first edition collectible literature. Um, Louis had been selling first edition mystery, and he had called his business Mystery Peer Books. Today, we, we, would, we would call it Jason and Jason Fine Books, but it's too well known now. We can't change the name. It's called one of the three most important first edition shops in America. It is exclusively first edition collectible literature. I mean, from Bram Stoker's Dracula to Charles Dickens, or signed, signed, or every book in the shop is a first edition. And it's, it's valuable collectible literature because the only collectible books are those in the first edition. And even more so if they're signed. So, I mean, we have stuff that is like absolute treasures. And you know, a lot of celebrities will come in and, and are clients of ours and they will sign uh, books of films they've done, for example. So we have a lot of books into film signed by all the stars of the pictures. And that's also collectible. And we also sell scripts signed by all, all the stars. But to sell Dickens or to sell Dracula, uh, to sell these wonderful things, we've got inscribed Queen Victoria and inscribed Churchill and, and Dickens and Hemingway and Faulkner and Steinbeck, uh, wonderful, wonderful stuff. And it's it's remarkable to be able to go in there and see all of these incredible works of literature 
And I think it's God's gift. It's God's grace. I believe it absolutely, you know. And I've never really been more fulfilled professionally in my life than every day when I walk through that shop and, and see these books. It's it's great. So we're online and you can see the shop online and, you know, and, and celebrities all talk about it, you know, which is very, very nice. We have a large uh, celebrity clientele and they all talk about the shop. Johnny Depp always wears our T-shirt when he plays music and stuff. It, it's great. It's great. I'm very curious about the screenplays that you've had come into your hands. Uh, can you tell us about some some interesting classic films that you've had? My God, yes, we've had we had the original we had the original Citizen Kane script. Oh wow, I'd, I'd love to see that. Do you still have that? No, that went to went to a actually it went to Barry Gibb of the Bee Gees. Wow, we've had uh, the Sting signed by um, Paul Newman, and uh, we've had a lot of really great scripts. We now have. A bunch of them in the shop. We have um, the Irishman script of the Irishman signed by all of them, by Marty Scorsese, by Bob De Niro, by Pacino, by all the stars of the movie. And we do that. We've got a whole section called Books into Film, and we have all the scripts signed by all the stars. And then we have books, uh, books into film signed by the stars, uh, as well as the authors. So it's a whole niche for collectors. It's ideal for collectors. Were you a book collector much before this? Yeah, I was. Yeah. As, as you can see. Oh, yes. I, mean, I can definitely I, see that. I've always been a reader and a collector, and both my sons and my wife as well. And my, my mother was a very big reader, and both my sons. We read all the time. You know, we read all the time. So has a book ever come into your collection that you know was intended for the store, but you just loved it so much you had to keep it for yourself? Yeah. Well, my favorite author is George Orwell. So I, I at one point, because I was a writer as well. And at one point I optioned, uh, I was very lucky, a book called Keep the Aspidistra Flying by George Orwell. I, I was able to meet George Orwell's wife and uh, I wrote the script on spec and the, the estate had been closed, closed to anybody. And I, my agent got the script to George Orwell's literary agent who showed it to George Orwell's widow who loved it and gave me the rights to the book. And we had a whole big thing. We packaged it. It all fell apart. Typical Hollywood story. It was all ready to get. It all fell apart. But but I love George Orwell. So Orwell, I collect myself. And um, I, a few authors I collect myself that I won't sell. So I'll ask you a loaded question here because, I mean, this I didn't even know you could even answer it. But you know, as someone who I would say is easily an expert in literature, what do you think is the most important work in American literature? Well, the most important. What is called the greatest American novel is a Scarlet Letter, Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. Uh, I, I'm not sure I would classify that as the greatest American novel, um, but that is what it's called. Um, there are other novels that I think are are superb. I mean, I also am not a big fan of Moby Dick. Which I think it's a really boring book, but Moby Dick is the great American classic, you know. We have Moby Dick. We just sold one, the first edition of Moby Dick. We have another one. Um, you know, there are some great, great books of literature, some great works uh, that are that are not really as applauded as they should be. Um, to, for example, George Orwell is known in America primarily for 1984, an animal farm. And yet some of his other works are equally meaningful and um he wrote a book called keep the aspirations flying which is about a guy 
1934, who says there's no longer such a thing as good and evil. It's just rich and poor. And that in the contemporary world, if you're rich, you're great, terrific. If you're poor, you're the scum of the earth. And so much of this is applicable to society's views today. You know, um, it's a great book. So I like, you know, I, I love re I love reading. I, I'm, I read all the time. What about you? Do you have favorite authors? Any favorite books? I, I do like Joseph Heller actually a lot. I do like his work. We had we had Joseph Heller's all the stuff that he, including his blotter from Catch Twenty Two, all of the signed stuff. We had everything from Catch Twenty Two. We still do have a couple of signed copies of Catch Twenty Two. He's a great author. I bombed in New Haven was not so good, but Catch Twenty Two is terrific, absolutely terrific. So, what's on your reading list right now, Harvey? What are you reading these days? Oh my God, I read I read so much. I try and read I, I try and reread, but I love Vladimir Nabokov. So I'm I'm rereading a couple of the Nabokov works. Um, I read, just finished reading Lolita again for like the umpteenth time, and some of his other stuff. But I also like reading. I, I still, you know, my background in the theatre. I still like reading plays. So you know, I, I like to I read I, I reread Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller's plays, Eugene O'Neill's plays. Um, I've always been a big fan of Eugene O'Neill. I like his plays. I like his one acts. But I read all the time. I, I, I read um, all the time. I love I love reading. Get immersed in books, just immersed in books. If there was a book out there you'd recommend to our readers today, it could be any topic, anything, any author, uh, just anything that you think you know our listeners might really enjoy that they may have never heard about before, what book would you recommend? What a great question. Well, I knew, I hate to say this because it's so politically loaded and I don't subscribe to the philosophy, but I knew Ayn Rand in New York. Um, and Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead uh, are great books, terrific books. Um, and that's, there's, you know, her philosophy of objectivism first began in the, in the book of The Fountainhead and then was developed in Atlas Shrugged. Um, Vladimir Nabokov, Lolita is a terrific book. Um, so many, so many marvelous, marvelous books. And, you know, classic American literature, The Scarlet Letter is a great book. You know, it's a great book. I like Dickens. I occasionally I'll reread Dickens. I finished reading Nicholas Nickleby not long ago. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff. Uh, I love Stephen King. Uh, Stephen King will never get a Pulitzer Prize, uh, which is terrible because he is nobody has their finger on the social pulse as well as Stephen King. He is the most brilliant author imaginable. He's the genius of an author, and I love Stephen King. Um, and I would encourage anybody who loves reading and loves to read Stephen King is fabulous. Yeah. I kind of like how we're having this discussion and we're talking about a lot of like well-known American classics and we've also got Stephen King in the mix. So, you know, oh, being yeah. a classic doesn't just mean being some pretentious book. It actually just means being no, something that's very well written. I mean, years and years and years from now, there's no reason why he shouldn't have a Pulitzer prize or every prize imaginable, but they won't give it to him because they know they're not literate enough. For folks out there who are listening today, by the way, if you want to check out Mystery Peer Books, just visit mysterypeerbooks.com. Uh, there's all sorts of information there. You can check out all of the things that are in the catalog. And I know you guys also do some auction things with some other people. So a lot going on at Mystery Peer Books, that's for sure. So Harvey, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really wonderful. It's been great picking your brain and I uh, really had a lot of fun today. Great questions. And it's a pleasure, a real pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Be well, continued success to you. I thank you for having me. Now I'm going to go back and sell some books. 
That was our conversation with Harvey Jason. And of course, if you're in California and are able to stop by Mystery Pier Books, well, tell them Trek Untold sent you. The Big Goodbye is a beloved episode for many Star Trek fans, especially since it really gave us the first good look at what the holodeck can and can't do. The title is based on a pair of Raymond Chandler Pulp Fiction detective books, The Big Sleep and The Long Goodbye, although the episode itself is much closer akin to The Maltese Falcon. Original plans for this episode called for it to be filmed in black and white to better represent the time that it took place in, and also to help separate it from the action happening outside of the holodeck. That idea was ultimately completely scrapped for this episode, but it was successfully implemented on Star Trek Voyager, and that's of course the Captain Proton adventures that Tom Paris loved to do on the holodeck, but of course, that's a story for another day. So that wraps up this week's episode of Trek Untold. Thank you so much for checking it out this week. Please make sure that you're following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Trek Untold. That's one word, no spaces, at Trek Untold. It's the best way to get updates on guests, check out all the memes and other things that we're posting, and interact with myself and other Star Trek fans. If you'd like to support this podcast, go ahead and check out patreon.com slash trekuntold and become a subscriber to the show. Or check out teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold to check out some of our merchandise. If you've been enjoying Trek Untold, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to podcasts. And if you're on YouTube, please give the video a thumbs up and subscribe to our channel, youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday. Leaving ratings, reviews, and comments are things that all help this podcast grow, and they'll cost you nothing but a few seconds of your time. Doing things like that, or even telling your friends or other Star Trek fans about the stuff you've heard on the show and making sure they know about us are huge helps to keeping Trek Untold growing. Thank you once again to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. Go ahead and check them out at triple-fictionproductions.net. If you'd like to send us some feedback about this episode, suggest a guest, or ask to be booked on the show, go ahead and send me an email at trekuntold at gmail.com. And of course, thanks to listeners like you for choosing Trek Untold and making it your weekly Star Trek podcast. This has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.